This podcast is free and it's accessible to everyone thanks to support from listeners like you. If you value this show, please consider supporting its production by donating to our home, KUOW. It only takes a minute to give and you'll be helping to support the production of this podcast. Make a donation at KUOW.org or follow the link in the show notes. And thanks. Welcome to KUOW Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this episode, 30 years ago, on a bit of a lark, something started in Seattle that would come to revolutionize how many people around the United States and the world explored and talked about their sex lives. A 20-something gay man named Dan Savage started giving mostly straight people sex advice in a weekly column, Savage Love. The column was nationally syndicated by the late 90s. The advice was funny, brash, and sometimes controversial. Savage has copped to occasionally giving patently bad advice, especially early on, but along the way he took more responsibility for the impact his musings and suggestions had. In 2010, Savage and his husband, Terry Miller, created the It Gets Better Project, a campaign to support and inspire LGBTQ young people and prevent suicide. Savage is marking this 30th anniversary with a new book, Savage Love from A to Z, Advice on Sex and Relationships, Dating and Mating, Exes and Extras. It's a collection of 26 never-before-published essays illustrated by Joe Newton. In this interview with KUOW's Bill Radke, Savage celebrates his milestone with champagne, cake, other edibles, and reflections from his journey. He also reminds us that he's still the fairly introverted man who once considered becoming a priest, who happens to enjoy playing the magpie. Fans will be happy to know he has no intention to stop. Dan Savage and Joe Newton spoke with Bill Radke on September 24th at Town Hall Seattle. Index Media and The Stranger presented the event. Please note, this recording most definitely contains unedited language and themes of an adult nature. Hi. Oh, my God. Are we really together in person? This is fabulous. First of all, I was having the, the nicest talk with, the, with a fellow backstage, the host of Savage Love cast and the author of this little thing, Savage Love from A to Z, advice on sex and relationships, dating and mating, exes and extras. I've been a fan for decades. I couldn't believe when he emailed me and asked me to do this. I don't know why he did, so I'm going to ask him, but let's bring him out. Please welcome Dan Savage, everybody. Hi. Hi. Dan, I am going to ask 
My first question is the one that's on the minds of everyone in this room. Why are we talking about hot sex with Bill Radke? Of all the people, <laughs> is Mr. Rogers, it's because Mr. Rogers is dead? Why me? Still waters run deep. I have my suspicions about you, Bill Radke. I, I happen to be... I think a, you're an animal. I am. I'm amazing in bed, but there's no way you could possibly know that. I have spies. I have people... <laughs> I know things. I've been here for a long time. You have, a, like, some kind of radar or something? Yeah. yeah. We call it gaydar, but we're straight guys. <laughs> hey, what are you doing? We're going to have some champagne. What are we... Like oh. 30th anniversary. Yeah. Uh, 30 years of savage love? Yeah. 30 years. Let's take a moment and be both sad and thrilled about the fact that it's the 30-year uh, anniversary. Happy birthday, Savage Love. Sorry? Happy birthday. Happy happy anniversary. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you all for coming. Thanks for being here. A cake and everything. Did you buy your own cake? (laughs) Yeah, we have a birthday cake, too. But just for you and me, there's not enough for everybody. I'm sorry. Yeah. It's kind of echoey in here. What did you say? Uh, The birthday cake is just for you and me. There's not enough for everybody. Yes. I'll speak more slowly. We'll get there. Well, um, Dan, I, I've been telling you, um, I don't know if I say it to your face, but I'm a... F- it sounds like you're going to break up with me. Uh, but I know I'm this a f- is a bad time with all these people here, but... <laughs> no, I'm a, a, I'm, a, I'm a fan, and I think the... the it gets better campaign. Like, have you won the Nobel Prize for that yet, or something? I <laughs> no, just think no. It's... God, that was ten years ago. We yeah. did win an Emmy for it, which was a weird thing for a YouTube campaign to win then. Um, but yeah, yeah, that was crazy. Yeah, that has a lot of heart to it. I just really appreciate that. From well, you. thanks, yeah. thanks. Because you can be an asshole in so many ways, and so then you come out and do something like that. Yeah, yeah. the asshole exterior covers up like a warm, gushy interior. <laughs> well, I... let's, let's talk about this, about this book, because as I've been telling KOW listeners for, for years, uh, A is for anal. So, <laughs> again, I can't believe you picked me, of all people, to be up here. <laughs> Did you think, like, Marcy Silman? No. Uh, Steve Scher. Bill Radke. Bill that Radke. That is hot. Um, a, a is for anal is the first chapter. This, so that's, you know, it's arranged in, in uh, kind, of a, kind of a children's book format, which we're going to discuss with the illustrator as well. Yeah, that was Joe Newton's idea. Was it? To, to do a kind of... Because his illustrations are so beautiful, and there's this tension between my content which is very explicit and adult, and his illustrations, which are, have an innocence at first glance, but when you really take them in, there's kind of a, knowing, uh, a knowingness to his illustrations, often a double entendre or something very witty going on underneath um, the aesthetic or the, the look of them. Uh, and yeah, it was Joe Newton's idea to do like a kid's book, an A to Z, but about all the concepts and ideas that have been sort of percolating in Savage Love for the last 30 years. Yeah. Well, let's start with anal, Dan. Um, because it's actually, it's not just the first chapter, but it's a, good, it's a good way to start us off because it does get us into what sex is quote-unquote for. 
Right. Right? So, we, so talk about that. Yeah, the, the idea that comes up in the column a lot, or that really I had to wrestle with in my life personally before I began to write the column, was there used to be this roaring debate when I was a very young kid that I remember like overhearing about recreational versus procreational sex. Right. And only procreational sex was permissible. And straight people allowed themselves to have as much sex as they wanted, even when they were using birth control and not wanting to have kids, not wanting to procreate, because there was sort of this procreational glow right. around straight sex, even when they weren't trying to procreate. Right. We're going to allow it. Yeah. They made all straight sex okay, even blowjobs, even anal for straight people. Right. And gay sex and gay people, because the, the sex that we have is only for pleasure, it really called the question our existence did on what is sex for. Um, and that was something that I had to really think about. I was Catholic. I was thinking about being a priest at one point in my life. And I, re- yeah. <laughs> and I really had to think that through. And observing sex, uh, even before I began to write the column, observing other people and how they put together their sex lives, it just became obvious that sex isn't for making babies. Not primarily. Not in human cultures and societies and relationships and communities. Sex does something else, and the other stuff it does is more important than making a baby. Mm. Any idiot can make a baby. Donald Trump made babies. Bristol Palin made babies. <laughs> what sex does is it, uh, it's about intimacy. It's about release. It's about connection. It's about creating uh, partner bonds. It can be about creating communities, whether that community lasts for a couple hours or lasts for decades, whether that community involves just two people or involves... Uh, multiple people or creates a family or creates a different kind of alternative family and that is what sex is for and the chapter like that's like the idea the big idea in the anal chapter is that talking about anal sex gets us to sex for pleasure and its validity and its necessity uh, for us for us as humans and anal is kind of universal uh, as opposed to almost all other kinds of sexual activity because everybody's got a butthole um, and any, not everybody has to do it or wants to do it, but anybody can do it. And anybody who does do it is really demonstrating what sex means in our lives, which is about pleasure and connection and good personal hygiene. <laughs> and you even say in there that it's, you, you don't say that we shouldn't feel like anal sex is wrong, you say if you feel that way, that can be kind of thrilling. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, like one of the things that I've always been a little not dubious about or just like, uh, okay, I get it, to want to like take all stigma away from sex, all shame away from sex, some of that stigma and shame, once you pivot away from being paralyzed by it, you can weaponize it in your own sex life and it can be hot to like enjoy that feeling of this is so wrong and this is so, so transgressive. Like if we normalize everything, then what's hot about, what's left to, to feel transgressive or, or risky hmm. or out there about? And so, yeah, some people feel dirty and wrong and bad when they have anal sex and my answer to them is always, Enjoy that while it lasts, because the more animal sex you have, the less you're going to feel that way. And then, <laughs> oh, you're going to miss it. You're going to miss it. <laughs> that edge, that, that frisson of, like, naughtiness. And yeah. it's funny, because as people get more... I always think of faggot and the way that's used uh, 
among gay men, not just as a term of affection, not just like as an in-group like signaling about oppression. It becomes something that a lot of gay men say to each other during sex. And it's sort of like reaching back to your childhood when hearing this was so traumatic and you were terrified of that word and like tossing it around during sex it evokes that and, and brings back that stigma and shame, but at a moment where you're enjoying it and in control of it. That's really powerful. That's a sweet, genuine smile you have. I, I like that. Go ahead. Call me a thing. <laughs> Uh, well, then, how come I got an email this week uh, from somebody, a listener, who said, you're, you know, I don't know exactly what she was listening to, but she said some ad or spot maybe running on KUOW came up about you and your thing with Dan Savage while I was listening to a story about someone who's dedicated his life to universal health care. And I just thought, man, what Dan Savage has dedicated his life to, what a waste, how sad. And I wrote back and I said, there's a lot of Dan Savage criticisms. Which one, which complaint do you have? And, uh, and, and, and she didn't get, get, she didn't write me back. She sent me a winky face back and that was all I ever heard from her. Oh. But I was like, I was saying, I want to know. It's my position on emojis that she hates. Is that it? That's it. Yeah. But there is that kind of thing hovering over. There's a, there's a kind of negativity and a freak out factor about sex of lots of kinds. Where do you think that comes from? Almost Catholic priests? Well, I think a lot of it's cultural, like a lot of religions want to make a problem out of sex or a sin out of sex because it's a really great way to control people. If you can grab them by the gonads uh, or the ovaries, you can really be in charge. But I actually think there's something hardwired in the human experience, something about the way we've evolved that contributes to a kind of sex negativity that's maybe something that we can't eradicate and we'll never be able to eradicate. Really? Because we have such extended childhoods and extended adolescence and we have this period in our lives where we're fully aware of what sex is before we hit puberty. And almost all of us, like you're five, six, seven years old Mm. and you begin to ask your parents or even younger, how did I happen? How did I get here? Mm. And sex, if you have reasonable, rational parents, is explained to you and you're horrified. Yeah, that is true. Right? I don't think we, we freaked our kids out about it, but they thought it was cringy from the get. Right. And some part of you when you're seven is like, I'm never doing that. Right. And adults are ridiculous right. and disgusting. Right. And then along comes puberty and you're dragged in. You're drafted. Mm. The lie we tell kids, which I think is hilarious, is that they will grow up and one day have sex. And the reality is, you will grow up and one day, sex will have you. Mm. And sex is in charge, and sex is powerful, and sex is scary, and sex can kill you dead, or really screw up or derail your life in profound ways. And yet, except for the lucky, you know, 1% or 0.80% who are asexual, we're all going to want it and we're all going to have it. We're like moths to the flame. Mm. And it's scary. And so some part of sex negativity, I think, is reasonable. It's awe of the danger and the consequences and the hugeness of sex. And sex is 500 billion years old or something. It's ancient. And it built us. And it's going to build whatever comes after us. We're not in charge of it. And it's scary. And so, yeah, I think that sex negativity 
plays a role and is hardwired into to the human experience in a way that even like eradicating Catholicism and all world religions and doing away with stigma and shame and letting people be who they are, there's still some part of us that's always going to be that freaked out eight-year-old going, my parents are disgusting. I can't believe they would do that. That's really interesting. Do you all, I'm curious if you agree with that. Because I thought, yeah? Because I thought, I thought Sister Marguerite was going to come up fast. Well, that was an issue for me growing up Catholic. But there's worse there's things more. that I was told than just the sex stuff. Like, like Mahatma Gandhi and Martin Luther King Jr. are in hell, which right. I was told by my fourth grade teacher. What did they do to be in hell? Every Jew who died oh. in the Holocaust was in hell because the Holocaust wasn't bad enough. Like the things we were told. Yeah. A lot of you know, people who are Catholic or people who observe Catholics from the outside, like I'm perceived as this post-Vatican II child and like after Vatican II, it was all singing nuns and niceness and yeah. like ecumenicism. Like they didn't take all the old nuns out behind the church <laughs> after Vatican II and like mow them down. Uh-huh. I had the same nun in fourth grade in the same classroom at St. Ignatius that my mom had in fourth grade that my grandmother had in fourth grade. Ooh. Because we were Catholics and we got married young and bred fast and... Sister Mary Amadeus was a Catholic nun and a teacher at the school for 65 years and mm. caught all three of us and wow. told me those things. Do you have any old school nun friends? No. Okay. I had great aunts who were nuns, but they passed away. Okay. Uh, should we, um, we, you, we can talk about anything all the time, but should we uh, hit another chapter? I'm sure. not going to hit all 26. There are no. 26... Uh, letters in all chapters and then like boxes and boxes little sub chapters yeah i forget what the a sub chapter was but some of them i remember i know the the, the next sub chapter is d is for dick but that's not the title of the chapter the title is d is for dtmfa um first of all i'll tell you why i i brought this up but you guys know dtmfa okay there are a few dan savagisms yes uh, GGG, what are, I don't know, what are the big things you're Pegging, for? Santorum, Monogamish. Like, Santorum, yeah. Looking back, like, as a writer, 30 years into, like, my ridiculous career, I was listening to a podcast where they were interviewing a Dutch sex researcher who began to use the word pegging. And it was, and it was like, okay, well, this is going to outlive me. Like, yeah. to, be, to be a writer and go, okay, I have shepherd it into existence because pegging was an idea by a reader but I just like put it on my platform and helped birth it will you explain pegging uh, pegging is when a woman um, are we they're going to try to put this on the radio should I just swear I think I think they're already going to have to do some bleeping yeah so. pegging is when a woman penetrates a man with a strap on dildo and I started writing the column in 1991 and then suddenly there was uh, toys in Babeland mm-hmm. And other kind of, in other cities where my column was running, there was this like boom of woman-owned feminist sex toy shops, often lesbian woman-owned feminist sex toy shops uh, like Claire and Rachel uh, with Babeland here in Seattle. And, you know, strap-ons were big with uh, lesbians and and bi women. And then straight people began walking into these stores and seeing strap-ons and hearing how much fun the gay guys were having, suddenly... The, Gentrifying your sex shops. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Suddenly all these straight people were wanting to experiment with strap-on sex with, where the woman could have the dick. Yeah. And they started writing me a lot of questions about it. 
And it was before you could Google anything, which changed a lot of things about my column. And I kept having to use the, that whole sentence, you know, I'm a woman who wants to, you know, when a woman fucks a man in the absolute strap on dildo, and it was just eating up so much word count that I was like, I need a one-syllable kind of sex word Do you young this. people understand word count? Do you know what that is a reference to? There was only so when many... When the column was in just in print and not on the internet, it had to be yeah. 1,200 words, and like, you would have to cut, 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 cut to make it fit. And the difference between like describing a sex act every time you had to mention it with like a 12 words as opposed to one word or two syllables saved me a lot of space, which is why I asked my readers to help me come up with something that would mean when a woman fucks a man in the ass with a strap on dildo. <laughs> I just realized why you emailed me. Am I the oldest person you know? Is, is I the only person you know who's going to get that reference? So DTMFA, I, I actually looked for, um, for things that I could in any way uh, disagree with you about because I figured that would be more interesting. Yeah. Um, and I, I f- have found some, sometimes in your ad- columns, in your advice, I think Dan's a little quick on the DTMFA trigger. First of all, what does DTMFA mean? Dump the motherfucker already. Which was another way of being brief and saving on word count, yeah. but was also, after doing it for, I think it was like eight years I'd been writing the column at that point, um, so many of the letters are just from people who need to break up with a terrible person. Yeah. Uh, and it's easy to tell somebody to get a divorce or to break up. It's harder to actually divorce someone or break up. But so many of the letters are from people who obviously need to end a relationship. They've been told by their friends and family they need to end this relationship. And they're writing to me. And what they need to do is obvious. And the problem was you could fill every week the column when I did it daily and then every week with just break up with him already, break up with her already, break up, break up, break up. Deal breaker. Yeah, deal breaker, like the uh, 30 Rock episode. Um, And so I just like created that acronym so I could be super brief with those questions. Okay, now some of them, of course, are are no-brainers to me too. But when I Googled Dan Savage DTMFA, the very first one that came up, I'll burn through this. I, 27-year-old female, have been with my partner, 32-year-old male, for three and a half years, living together two and a half years, joint bank account, spend time talking about our future, most of our free time together doing fun, adventurous stuff. My family and friends and I all agree he's a lovely guy. Here's the catch. We fight, resulting in me eventually breaking down in tears on nearly a daily basis. Usually it's not about anything significant and it always escalates so quickly. I find it difficult afterwards to pin down the moment it went from conversation to argument. The other issue is that he can get over an argument easily. Ten minutes later, he's back to his happy, cheery self while I feel upset about arguments and what was said for hours or even days after. The result of all this is I'm seriously questioning if this is really the person I want to be with forever or I should end it now before I end up in a hellish marriage. A couple more sentences, but that's the gist. <laughs> and you, with only that to go on, this person, they, they argue. She's not even sure when it exactly turned into an argument. He's happy 10 minutes later. She's upset for whatever reason she's upset. What did and I tell that him? DTMFA! <laughs> and and I, I brought it up because... I am... Because uh, you wrote that letter. Because I... And you just me! switched the genders yes. to throw me off yes. the scent. Um, because I'm in the position of occasionally, you know, I talk to friends, I have single friends, and I so often am saying, 
look at it from her point of view or look at it from his point of view and and you know you can learn a lot if you try if you just hang with it and work it out i'm not talking about abusive partners but yeah. uh, sometimes i think man Dan, you're, it's so catchy, DTMFA, that people love to, to label the other person as, as, the, as the MF and that right. they're wrong. Is there a question in there? No, I don't know. But, like. but, but why, not, why not more often say, you know, why, 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 how do you know that person is the motherfucker who should be dumb? Well, the, uh, sometimes, I've also written, I think, I'd like to think eloquently, yes. that sometimes a relationship reaches a point where it just is over and nobody has to be the bad guy. And some people think they can't exit a relationship without a causus belli, without mm. grounds. And just like I'm done, you're done, but there's no conflict. And in the absence of conflict, people will generate it so they have a reason to end the relationship. Agreed. And it feels, and I've written that you can love someone and leave them. And you can love them out of the relationship. Mm. And a relationship can end and have been a success. That's something I've been saying since the first year of Savage Love. Yep. That this idea that if two people get out of it alive, it was a failure, is not a standard we apply to anything but relationships. Right. Not to air travel, not to dinner, not to a movie. <laughs> if t- everybody gets out alive, we generally regard like that car ride as a success. But if it's a marriage and both people get out of it alive, it's a failure. Mm. And we need to be a little bit more sophisticated about that. Like if it's a marriage and two people get out of it and there's affection and there's still a bond there and everybody learned and grew together and they just parted and there's not acrimony, there's not like abuse, then it was a success. And whoever those people are now, that marriage helped make them those people, right? That said, yeah, you can find evidence of where maybe I was a little too quick on the DTMFA draw, And maybe that's an example of that. Luckily for that person, it's advice not binding arbitration. Yes, fair enough. don't have to do what I say. (laughs) That is true. Uh, Yeah, it's just I'm often in the... the, uh, I think that I'm thinking of one buddy uh, who's my age and, and, you know, not everybody... Obviously, I don't say everybody has to get married, anything like that. But I think, man, you're a little quick to pull the trigger on moving on to the next one, which especially today with, with online dating, again, I'm not even, I'm not hating on online dating, but it's pretty easy to keep people at a distance. Yeah. I have, I've been with my husband for 30 years. Yeah. I have friends who have been perpetually single or like churned through a lot of relationships who will come to me like personally and say, how come you can, like, I haven't found the person that I can make it last with. And I'll laugh at them and say, you break up with people for bullshit reasons. Okay. You break up with, like, if I were you, I would have broken up with Terry 30 times yes. or more. And he would have broken up with me if he were you 30 times or more. And some people can't absorb, can't forgive, and that's something that no relationship enters like the multi-decade LTR stage. Not that a relationship has to for it to have been a success. No. Um, one of the things I write about frequently is we, we talk about LTRs, long-term relationships, mm. we need, as successes. We need to talk about STRs, short-term relationships, as something that can also be successful and that we can be good at. And if we have it in our heads that if a relationship's only going to last for a weekend or like three months or a year, and we still want that to be a success, we're going to be kinder to the people that we're in what we anticipate might be short-term relationships mm. than if we just like, yeah, this is, there's no long-term potential here. I don't have to be nice to you. Mm. 
And I just think that's horrible. And I forget what the question was. <laughs> Again, that's very sweet of you. Because pot is legal. <laughs> is that what happened before yeah. the show? Oh, man. Um, okay. I'm going to be Look, face down in that cake in like 10 minutes. Do I make you nervous? Did you no, thought you no, had to get no. through it? No, it's, okay. it, it got dark outside. That's pot time. Okay. Uh, what else we got? I actually missed what you said. What? Uh, uh, okay, so E is for expectation. I chose this one because, again, I'm agreeing, I'm agreeing, I'm agreeing. But Because one of the things that comes up in your expectations chapter is infidelity. And man, uh, I would have a problem, not that this has ever happened, but I would have a problem with uh, a certain woman in the front row here uh, seeming more excited about somebody else than about her husband. Mm. And my reasoning is, um, because you you basically think that we're overly freaked out about infidelity. I'll let you explain. Yeah. But... um, The way I look at it is, I've, no, it's not murder, but I've had partners, I've, we've both had other partners before. I I, I did that, I'm done with that, now we're doing, it's like, it would be like going on a road trip with your, with your best friend, and then, and then, you know, in New Orleans, they say, you know what, I'm going to rent a car for, for a day or two, and I might catch up with you later down the road, and it's like, I thought we were doing this. So, so sell me on why infidelity is, is, uh, is, is not as big a deal as it's, it would feel to me if the, inev- if the Im- ir- impossible Did you say inevitable? would happen. <laughs> Why did inevitable almost come in my mouth? Where is she? Not inevitable, right? Okay. Has it already happened and he just doesn't know? Um, I do think infidelity is a big deal. I know... I don't think it's helpful to tell people that it's something a relationship can't survive when you consider how common it is. And rather than, you know, if we define cheating as a relationship extinction level event, and then we turn around and define everything as cheating, looking at porn, checking out the barista's ass, having like too close an emotional connection with like an opposite sex or same sex depending, or both, friend at work. Then like we're just blowing up relationships. We're Mm. destabilizing what might otherwise be successful long-term relationships. Knowing what we know about infidelity and cheating, we should tell people this is very, if you make a monogamous commitment, you should endeavor to keep it. It is a very serious betrayal if somebody violates a monogamous commitment. It is something that a relationship can survive. That's not setting monogamous relationships up for failure. That's setting monogamous relationships up for continued success post, not the inevitable, but the routine. Mm. Infidelity. Because it happens. Not routine in every relationship, but like, it's not like one in a million. Yeah. It's like really fucking common. Yeah, yeah. And so I don't say these things because I want everyone to be non-monogamous or cavalier or feel like they have license to cheat. I, want, I say these things because I want to set people up for, you know, walking through the valley of the shadow of relationship death, but then coming out of it together. Yeah. And a lot of relationships that survive an infidelity suddenly get a lot more honest and closer 
Esther Perel writes about this in um, her book, her most recent book, and the title escapes me because Pa. Esther Perel is a marriage therapist. It might be Where Should We Begin? I don't not know. Where Should She Begin, okay. Not Mating in Captivity, uh, the one she just wrote about infidelity, okay. her last book, that sometimes cheating you know, makes a relationship better, like in the wake of it, in the processing of it, in the coming the closer together. And she would never then say cheating is good or people should do it to save their relationships because sometimes, you know, going through a cancer treatment can really help somebody clarify and understand their life and live a better life after they survive cancer. It doesn't, she doesn't then think that everybody should get cancer mm. to live a better life. Like, that's a near-death experience. And infidelity can be for a relationship a near-death experience. All that said, I do want people to know themselves and know what they're capable of. When I was 25, we were talking about this backstage. Mm. When I was 25, I was trying to be monogamous and just failing at it. And I thought, well, monogamy is what good people want. It's what good people do. I want to be a good person. So I'm not a good person because I can't do this. And then one day I was like, no, 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 no. I'm not failing monogamy. Monogamy's failing me. And I can do something else and still be a good person because it's about honesty. And, you know, I write in the book that uh, my husband, Terry and I, like we've been kind of very publicly not monogamous for a very long time. Monogamish. Um, we've been mon- we were monogamish for a while and now we're really poly. Like okay. when I wrote The Kid, I said we were monogamous because we were at the time at Terry's insistence. And then when I wrote The Commitment about marrying, we were no longer monogamous and I wanted to, I felt like I had to put that out there because I didn't want someone to like bust us and claim that we were lying back when we were adopting about being monogamous because we were then and now that we weren't we had to like tell the truth um where was i going with this monogamish um (laughs) monogamy failed you Um, oh and and what like drives me crazy about monogamous people like you uh (laughs) not you in particular but other monogamous people is like what are we committing to because i've had so many people tell me like right to my face including on television (laughs) They couldn't do what Terry and I are doing because they value commitment too highly. What is the fuck is that supposed to mean? Yeah. And the next thing out of someone's mouth, almost invariably, when they say that is, all of my marriages were monogamous. <laughs> so what they're committed to is monogamy. Yeah. What I'm committed to is him. Yeah. And monogamy worked for us for a while, and monogamish, which was like we were mostly monogamous, and occasionally there was like the planets aligned. Mm-hmm. Um, and now we're, you know, he has a boyfriend, I have a boyfriend, we're much more poly now, as, like, as much as sometimes poly rhetoric, or poly am, we're supposed to call it now, rhetoric can like even make my skin crawl. What do you mean? Nothing I want to unpack because they're okay. all murdered. <laughs> um, even after an edible, I can't get you to tell no, me No, I forgot about... what I was going to say. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, we're committed to each other. Uh, and and like that, I think that, that ex- the example of our relationship, not to universalize our experience or anything, is that almost all non-monogamous couples I know were monogamous for a while. Many monogamous couples I know were open for a while. That we adopt relationship models to serve our relationship. And we, all of us should adopt the models and structures that serve us that aren't imposed on us. Mm. And I want people in the conversations about monogamy and non-monogamy and infidelity and commitment in my column and on my podcast to understand that they have to figure out what works 
for them. And it's better for monogamous people if people who can't do it don't try. <laughs> if people who can't do it don't make commitments they can't keep. Yeah. And we say to people, well, you shouldn't make a monogamous commitment if you can't keep it. But a lot of people are making monogamous commitments under duress. Because uh, it's what they think they have to do. It's what they've been told a good person does. It's what their partner demanded. And when people make commitments that, that didn't come from inside. Mm. And the other thing I want monogamous people to accept is that it's a struggle to remain monogamous. You know, we, monogamy is the only thing someone has to do for 50 years perfectly to be considered any good at it. Right. Sean White, gold, if you listen to my podcast, you've heard me say this, Sean White, Olympic gold medal snowboarder, can fall down in the snow and get up and still be Sean White, Olympic gold medalist. Yeah. Somebody who's monogamous for 50 years, their partner finds out they cheated on them once 30 years ago, they were terrible at being monogamous. They were never in love. The whole relationship was a lie. Yeah. How does encouraging people to think that strengthen or help mon people who are doing monogamy, who want to be monogamous, rather than telling people, somebody who cheated on you once or twice over 50 years, they were good at monogamy. Yeah. Okay, once or twice. Because there's a big difference, though, between zero and one. Right? Yeah. But there's a, a big difference between... There's a big difference between one regretted, buried, lesson learned, yeah. never did it again, mm -hmm. touching somebody else with your penis, and serial adultery, and that kind of contemptuous betrayal, yeah. as opposed to you're human. And why do people cheat? Well, some people don't, like all the data show that people don't cheat because they're not in love with their partner. That there's sometimes a need that a person has that their partner can't meet, not just like a kink thing, like an emotional need, a need to be seen, a need to be, to feel desirable uh, to someone whose job is not to desire you. Mm. So don't necessarily DTMFA. No, not for cheating. Okay. For Honey, abuse, for neglect, for contempt. Uh, <laughs> For Real Housewives addiction? Uh, <laughs> um, let's talk, uh, let's talk, let's just talk about E for expectations some more. Talk about I think what? There's, I think there's another oh, slide Oh, expectations, up here. yeah. Have realistic expectations. That's my advice about expectations. Okay, this is one I wanted to talk about. The one, uh, the idea that there is a the one where you were telling me that the negativity around sex, you said that's kind of, you think that's hardwired. I think some of it's hardwired and then it's culturally some. reinforced. Pardon okay. me for spitting. What about the one? Where do, you, where do you think that comes from? Why does it persist? I don't know where it, it comes from. Is it fading at all? Pardon? Is it fading? I hope it's fading. The one is a compliment you pay somebody who isn't the one. <laughs> And you should regard it that way. It's, hyper, it's hyperbole. And someone becomes the one because you treat them that way. I like to say that maybe you'll meet a 0.64, maybe you'll meet a 0.72, and then you round that motherfucker round up, up. <laughs> to one, yeah. to the one. Yeah. And I began to wrestle with this early on writing the column because I would get these letters from people who would describe the relationships they were in that sounded wonderful, that mm. sounded I, idyllic and yet they had this gnawing 
anxiety that this person wasn't the one. And there was someone out there who was perfect for them where they would have a frictionless relationship, which ain't great for sex. And <laughs> Friction comes in handy. And they were just tormented, this existential torment that like the one was out there, but I was with this person who was great, but maybe there was something better. And this was before the internet came along and tortured us with like Tinder and Grindr and like mm. oh, the, the burden of choice. Yeah. And it just, I just saw that the people who, who didn't get that it was hyperbole, the people who didn't get that it was a compliment, were ending great relationships that they would regret ending to go out there and search the world for the one that they had been told and that they believed because they were not hopeless romantics, dumb romantics <laughs> that they could find. And that's just not helpful. And most people, I think, see through it. Most people know that all relationships involve compromise and some sort of tension, and there's no frictionless relationship, and no one is perfect, and nobody can meet all your needs, and you can't meet all of anyone else's needs, and no one person can be everything to any other one person, which is why we need a community, which is why we need to undo the damage done by the nuclear family suburbs thing of the last 70 years, where your romantic partner has to be your best friend and this and that and the other, rather than having your romantic partner and a best friend and a community of people that you can rely on to get other emotional, if not sexual, needs met. Th there isn't the one. And so I say that to people who are reasonable and understand and they get it. It's the romantics that need to hear it. Mm that you're going to have to pay a price of admission, but no one is the one. And you're no one's one. That's the, that's the flip side of it. You're going to have to get rounded up too. You've got to get rounded up too. Yeah. And take the compliment. Mm. Um, you know, when we date, when we meet somebody the first time, we kind of throw up this Potemkin Village version of ourselves, the mm. best self, right? Yeah, I kind of did that, i got to say. Dating yeah. is a process of letting a person see that behind all that. Yeah. And what's great about a relationship if, when it you know, is healthy and functional and it becomes long-term is you end up having to live up to the facade. And the expectation from your partner that you will live up to the lie that you told them about who you were mm. can make you a slightly better person as you endeavor <laughs> to live up to the lie. Yeah. And they know that's what you're doing. You know that's what you're doing. You know they're doing that for you too. And that's the like glorious lie at the heart of every long-term relationship <laughs> is I'm pretending to be the person I lied to you about. <laughs> and you're pretending to be the person you lied to me about. And every once in a while we recommit to the lie that we are these better people than we knew ourselves to be on that first date. And it's kind of beautiful. Wow, that's, that's beautiful. I did. I thought I, I, thought I was a, a better human than I turned out to be. We all thought you were a better human yeah. than you turned out to be. Am I right? I'm trying, honey. Um, I, this I, is an intervention, Bill. We're all actually you. here That's for you. why we're here. That's why. <laughs> she emailed you and then... Um, well, I, I, I wonder if, if religion has something to do with the oneness, like one, is there, is there, uh, my uh, colleague of mine says we have a God-shaped hole, I, I'm an atheist, I think you're an atheist, but, but it seems like, uh, it seems like the wanting there to be something transcendent, we don't want to die, you know, we want there to be 
something, we want there to be wizards and we want there to be uh, something with a rainbow over it. Yeah. It's really inarticulate. We do, but there isn't. Yeah. Okay, well, thanks. I mean, <laughs> yeah, like the existential terror and dread of, of existence and non-existence. And yeah, that's, that's terrifying. And we oh. cling to each other in the here and now in terror. Oof. And so we invent like nice stories about dudes with beards who are going <laughs> to welcome us into heaven unless we guessed wrong on the religion quiz, in which case we go to hell for all eternity. We could get into religion if you want, but let's just stick to sex. Let's stick let's to something stick to non-controversial. Um, I think, you know, yeah. where I'm at about religion right now, uh, I was having this conversation with a, a, a friend who's in some distress and was almost embarrassed to tell me that he was beginning to lean on faith. Yeah because uh, I'm such a rabid atheist, and like some sort of higher power. And I have a problem with most organized religions because they're pretending to know things they can't possibly know, and that's not a lie I can get behind or I think is ennobling. Um, and a lot of sort of woo-woo, my mother would call, my mother called everything that wasn't Catholicism disorganized religion. Uh-huh. <laughs> but what I can get behind is like what we don't know. And there's a vastness to what we don't know. Yeah. And that's everything like outside us as an individual. And that, the vastness of what isn't in me and isn't me is staggering to, to contemplate. And a faith, not a faith, just like to acknowledge the vastness that is outside you. Yeah. Acknowledges its power and its enormousness and like it is kind of a Godhead but you, instead of like trying to define it and give it a beard and nail it to a cross or whatever, you just acknowledge what's, what you don't have power over, what you don't have a control over. Yeah. You only have control and power over yourself and then sometimes even that's taken from you. Sometimes you piss that away. Mm. And then to acknowledge what you don't have power over and put it out there and address it. And if you need to anthropomorphize it, if you need to give it a name, go ahead. But don't give it power over others. That's where we get into trouble. Uh, the book is Savage Religion God. from A to Z. <laughs> With Dan Savage. Um, R is for rejection. This is another uh, hard one for me. I do, I do fear rejection. How do you not fear rejection? Do you have any advice? Does anyone here fear rejection? Okay, we all fear rejection. But you write like you don't. Yeah, it's a lie. <laughs> it's all lies. Um, people are paralyzed by their fear of rejection. And then they wind up not being who they are, not asking for what they want for fear that they'll be rejected. And if somebody doesn't like who you are and can't give you a reasonable approximation of what you want, sexually, emotionally, whatever, in a relationship... The sooner you sort that out and realize that you shouldn't be with this person, the sooner you can then get out there and find someone who can give you a closer approximation of what you want, what you need, and who does a point want to seven be with you. Four, maybe. Yeah. 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 Sorry, I'm burping because I'm drinking champagne. Mm-hmm. And so, rejection, as painful as it can be in the moment, and humiliating and dispiriting, 
you're not with, you know, if you wound up in a relationship that's making you happy, you're only in that relationship because every relationship you were in before that, you got dumped, mm-hmm. right? So all that, at least in retrospect, you're happy with your partner, you're happy with your spouse. In retrospect, every woman who broke your heart did you a favor. Did me a favor. Because there you were ready and available when the woman you're with came along, right? Right? Yeah. And it's just a different way of like looking at it. It doesn't make it any less painful in the moment. Maybe you were hoping that this person would be the person you could be with, or maybe you weren't over them or ready to end the relationship when they were ready to end the relationship. And that sucks. But what are you going to do? Do you see any signs that in 30 years, have you solved anything? Are people less afraid of rejection because Dan Savage existed? Are people... Well, I was, I was part of a whole like movement around sex positivity and honesty. What was really brave about the stranger in Tim Catcoin when he let me uh, write my column out of the gate was he let me use the language people actually use when they talked about sex in print, which no one had really done before. But it was part of this whole like getting honest about the sex people were having as opposed to the sex we all agreed people ought to be having. And that really grew out of the AIDS epidemic. Like before the AIDS epidemic, we all agreed people should have procreational sex and marital relationships with opposite sex partners. And then along came the AIDS epidemic and the sex people were having that wasn't that was causing some problems. And we had to talk about sex people were actually having so that people could be protected. And then we had to acknowledge the existence of gay people, anal sex, uh, bisexual men in heterosexual relationships, the risk that lesbian sex uh, posed for lesbians who could get HIV, IV drugs. We had to have a whole conversation about IV drugs, how common they were, and needle... Like, it just forced a conversation. Savage Love grew out of that. And I think that realism uh, about meeting people where they are sexually... Savage Love really played into and helped build, but I can't claim credit for it. Savage Love was a part of a wider conversation that I think kicked off during the AIDS epidemic about sex mm-hmm. um, and about like the emerging role that gay people were playing in the lives of straight people as straight people got to know the gay people that they always knew but didn't know they knew until more and more gay people started coming out. Um, and there's something else I was going to say. But did you start the... How do you start it? Oh, the thing, the thing yeah. that I think that the column helped change. There's a question I used to get all the time. And the like sex positivity movement and being honest about sex. I used to get every other letter, am I normal? I don't get that anymore. Every fourth letter from a straight woman about her boyfriend was, is he gay? Uh-huh. Don't get that so much anymore. People now understand that, I I think, because of the broad and honest conversation we've had about sex over the last 30 years, that when it comes to human sexuality, variance is the norm. And now we have the data that bears that out. Um, The the example I always like to cite is this study uh, in the UK where they set out to measure paraphilias, which are non-normative sexual desires, kinks, paraphilia. And they wanted... uh, They they measured paraphilia, they got a control group, and what they discovered was that a majority of all people have a paraphilia, which means it's not non-normative to have a paraphilia, it's normative to have a paraphilia. And so the more unique and idiosyncratic and personal and weird your sexuality is, your kinks are, your interests are, the more normal you are, paradoxically. (laughs) And people kind of got that through their heads at some point in the odds, 
and stopped asking, am I normal? Because they know that they're not, and that is normal, mm-hmm. to not be normal. And the whole conversation about pegging and, and pleasure and all the different ways that two people can have sex, even if they're opposite sex people, it doesn't have to be PIV every time. I stopped getting quest- so many questions. That'd be from penis and s- vagina, by the way. P-I-V, <laughs> as we call it in the trade. Yeah. Stop getting so many questions from straight women worried that their boyfriends were gay because they had a feeling once or they liked to have their nipples touched or wanted to be pegged. And that if a man and a woman were doing it together, it was opposite sex sex, not always heterosexual sex, but almost always heterosexual sex. Whatever was happening and whoever was doing what to who. And that took a long time. You know, when I first started writing, I observed the poor, I felt so sorry for straight guys. Because once I started writing Savage Love, didn't feel sorry for them before. <laughs> because you come out as gay and you're free. Like, I had sex with girls. Nobody doubts me when I say that I'm gay, right? A straight guy who had sex with a guy once and his girlfriend finds out. Or his gay friend finds out. No one will ever believe he's straight ever again. Mm-hmm. And so there was a brittleness to not the heterosexuality of so many straight men, but to how their heterosexuality was perceived by other straight men, but also by women and by gay men. And there was this policing of straight male sexuality and almost this disbelief often that I just found made my heart grow three sizes one day. And then all the straight guys kind of fit inside. (laughs) So it wasn't a God-shaped hole in my heart. It was a straight boy-shaped hole in my heart. Um, well, you, that, there was so much in there and, and there's like three different times I wanted to get off that highway. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah, rejection's your friend. Pardon? Rejection's your friend in disguise. You just don't know it at rejection. the time. Yeah. As painful as it can be. Don't reject me anyway, though. Um, <laughs> Z is for zilch. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God, I love that illo. <laughs> yeah. Pumpkin pie, my favorite. You say in here that, that you are entitled to nothing, which is in this chapter, which is something I've said for a long time. And I said it to a colleague of mine who was, um, she, her, her reaction was, if you, if, if you think that you are entitled to nothing, you'll get nothing, basically. Um, she, she didn't buy it. And I think I even said that I tell my kids that. You're not entitled to anything, you know? And she thought that was a wrong-headed message. She kind of, like, that was a, what a terrible thing to tell your children that they, as if I said they deserve nothing. I guess it's the same. It, yeah, you deserve nothing. Anyway, will you explain <laughs> Z is for zilch? Because I was nodding my head, but, but I'm remembering that conversation. You're entitled to bodily autonomy. You're entitled to yeah. full civil... Uh, equality uh, to your civil rights. I believe that we're all entitled to health care and housing. Uh, and <laughs> to that end, we need to rezone Seattle for multifamily dwellings and stop with this fucking single-family zoning everywhere. Um, but you're That's not entitled to anyone's time. You're not entitled to anyone's dick. You're not entitled to anyone's holes. You're not entitled to anyone's attention. You're not entitled to anyone's body. Um, you know, I'm sort of pushing back against like male entitlement uh, in this chapter, but also 
uh, it's almost of a piece with like having reasonable expectations. I think there's something fundamentally transactional about all human relationships. I have a chapter on incels where I talk about sex work, not as a cure for someone who's a toxic, violent incel. This is upstream of the creation of incels. Involuntary involuntary celibates who are very angry, crazy, radicalized, misogynist men who have organized on the internet who are furiously angry that supermodels won't date them. Um, Sometimes murderously angry. Yeah, murderously angry. And now I'm getting derailed by this. Yeah, well, there's a sense of entitlement about that, obviously. Yeah, where you were. Oh, I think all relations. And I say in that chapter that, like, if we tell people, we acknowledge that you see sex work celebrated sometimes in film. There was a Helen Hunt movie a few years ago, The Sessions, where she played a sex worker who was seeing a profoundly disabled client and, like, a relationship grew there. And we accept that. We even lionize that. There are like glowing stories written about moms who arrange for their profoundly disabled sons to have sex workers come and meet their sexual needs that are very pressing. And, and, and I think they have a right to have those sexual needs met. And we'll lionize those mothers. There have been stories written about moms who'll do that for their profoundly disabled sons. And we don't recognize that some people are profoundly socially disabled and find it very difficult to make the kind of connection that others of us who aren't socially disabled can make. And then the one outlet that may be possible for someone who's socially disabled in the way some people are profoundly physically disabled, which is paying for sex, we stigmatize paying for sex so that you're a loser or you're a monster if you buy sex. Um, And, you know, you're taking advantage or people are being trafficked. And you're just a monster if you buy sex. And it closes off what could be the only avenue for some people to ever have sexual release, connection, physical intimacy, when we shame them for it. Uh, And, you know, like this, what you're entitled to, I feel that all relationships are fundamentally transactional. Um, You may be, you pay your wife with time, attention, love, consideration. You pay in. And so she, much. She pays you with the same. <laughs> there may be abstractions, but it's still an exchange. And if you stopped paying into the relationship with time, attention, consideration, love, affection, forgiveness, sexual attention, whatever, the relationship would wither and die because you weren't paying for it anymore. Mm. You weren't paying in. You weren't earning it. And that's really what that chapter is about. It's like you have to earn your relationships and continue to earn them which is just, you know, a savage love, assholey way to say something that Ann Landers was saying in her column 70 years ago, right. that you can't take your partner for granted. And it's the death of a relationship to take someone for granted. I'm not entitled to my husband or my boyfriend's eternal attentions or affections. I have to earn them. Yeah, agreed. <laughs> and no one's entitled... And I'm not pro- being, and the, by the way, uh, and I don't a child that... abusing when I tell my kids they're not entitled. I mean it the way Dan Savage said. Yeah. It's all, it, uh, they'll, of course, be reading this book. Go on. I just, that's not to, like, I'm not saying that, I don't think that's dehumanizing. Right. Like, I think that's humanizing to say, like, my husband has needs that I have committed to meet, and I will continue to commit to meet them 
because I want to earn him. I want him to be in my life and not feel as if I've abandoned or betrayed him or, uh, or I take him for granted in a, in a way that makes him feel not seen or valued. Mm. And I'm hyper-conscious of that. And I don't, and I, and I feel like I can put the label transactional on that. It's still about affection. It's still about love. It's still about a connection. It's just about sustaining it and understanding what's going on on some like biochemical fundamental human level, which is an exchange of goods and services. <laughs> yes. Uh, I remembered now, you, you were talking about the modern honesty and I wondered if you ever struggle with modern, um, I get the sense sometimes in your writing that you have a, you're, there's a little eye rolling or annoyance going on at modern sensitivities around, you know, you know, I mean, they vary from uh, consent, identity, um, just sort of politics in general. Where, where are you at on, on you, you said some good things about how far we've come. Where, where are you at on the state of how we're relating to each other and talking with each other? These well, days? I'm very pro-consent and yes. always have been. Yes. Um, I think I wrote the first time in my column, like in the first year or two, that consent is the magic ingredient. The absence of consent turns boring vanilla sex into rape. And the presence of consent turns the craziest BDSM ass-whooping sex into love, into sex, <laughs> into like a connection. Yeah. Um, so I'm very pro-consent. I think the, the shift to uh, no means no, to shifting to yes means yes, I think has been tremendous. I wish I came up with that. Mm-hmm. I wish I had coined that phrase. Um, the identity stuff, sometimes it feels a little thinly sliced, Sometimes it feels like we're building identities or sexual orientations around personality traits. I don't think sapiosexuals are a thing. Uh, what, what is sapiosexual? A sapiosexual is someone who only, can only experience sexual attraction when they think somebody is smart, when they're attracted intellectually. They feel My intellectual like connection. No. Okay, so the rest of us just fuck dummies. Like, what are you saying? <laughs> like, how is that just not narcissism and I'm sure if like somebody who was log stupid but was like your physical ideal came along you wouldn't be like no no I couldn't possibly (laughs) and so I sometimes like look on that with some dubiousness it seems like the internet came along and a lot of people who basically never get out from behind their computers spent a lot of time coming up with names for things that didn't need them and pride flags for things that didn't require them. A fray sexual. There's a fray sexual pride flag. A fray sexual is someone who loses interest in a person uh, sexually after they get to know them. We used to call them assholes. <laughs> and actually, like, I'm just joking there. It gets a laugh. I was writing about a dynamic like that decades ago. Like, if you know you're the kind of person who loses interest that's fine. It means you're, you're an STR type. You're a short-term relationship person. Don't make long-term commitments. Know yourself well enough not to break people's hearts, not to uh, allow them to make assumptions about who you are that would be reasonable uh, in most cases but aren't reasonable in your case. Uh, and that's fine. You can be a fray sexual. You can have a pride flag of your own. You can have your contingent in the pride parade. Whatever. 
and I support your identity, and that you can name it is important. Now, there are some that I like was dubious about at first that I'm like, okay, I get it 100%. Research bears it out, data bears it out. Example, like, please. Asexuality as a sexual orientation. Mm. Absolutely, right? Demisexuality as a sexual orientation. What is? Demisexuality. Demi, meaning? Uh, I forget. Okay. <laughs> I know, who knows? I know what this means. I can usually just rattle it off on my show, but. You have to have a romantic connection to feel a sexual attraction. Establishing the romantic connection first, which used to be just how most people kind of functioned. Yeah. But then along came hookup culture and dating apps and Tinder and Grindr and Recon and everything else. So I guess then it made people who needed to like feel that feel marginalized or feel like they were a minority group or needed a name to justify not wanting to jump into the sack right away, which sort of became normalized jumping in the sack right away. Not just for gay people, for straight people too. That's what I really love about 30 Years of Right Sandwich Love is like the big sort of thing that I've observed is because what was weird about Savage Love when it started was it was a gay guy giving sex advice to straight people. And that hadn't really been done before. And what's been so fascinating as a gay person who spends all this time writing about straight people and straight sex for the most part is watching the, wall, the, the distinctions between like what straight culture was and what gay culture was collapse because there was nothing straight about marriage and kids. We weren't allowed to do it, right? Yeah. And there was nothing gay about hooking up. It's just straight people kind of weren't allowed to do it. Mm-hmm. you're old enough to remember like all the novels and all the books and movies about the midlife crisis. Yeah. Where'd they all go? <laughs> right. That was a genre and a huge one. And that was because straight people didn't have lives mm-hmm. before they got married and had kids. And then they would hit 40 or 50 and then be like, shit, I didn't do anything I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. I got married at 21 and had kids and I didn't have any fun or adventures or like figure out who I was. And then straight people would try to figure that out and reverse engineer it at 45, right? You don't hear about the midlife crisis so much anymore, except as jokes when people talk about having a 25 life crisis, right? Um, because straight people now, what do they do in their 20s? They live like gay people. <laughs> they took everything that gay people do and just renamed it. We had fuck buddies. You have friends with benefits, <laughs> right? We had tricks. You, we tricked. You hook up. Right. We have Grinder. You have Tinder. Like, straight people are gay people. And this is what the religious right was afraid of, right? Yeah. That, if, that straight people would see the hedonism in gay life and want a taste of that for themselves. And they did. And gay people saw the stability and the structure in straight people's lives that was handed to them through statute, through law. And we wanted that for ourselves too, just not right away. Has that made a difference politically? Yeah, I think so. I hope so. I hope so. I mean, it just, it just tells us that every, like gay people were only allowed to do certain things, right? And yeah. then we were told that was, and then the culture pointed at us and said we were bad for only doing those things, right? Um, and that has melted away. I don't know how you unscramble these eggs of like the gay dads in the PTA and the like gay people embedded in the neighborhood. Like Terry and I are challenging neighbors. <laughs> um, I think we're good neighbors. Uh, but like we moved on to the block and 
a family moved away because the gay guys had finally arrived uh, on the block, which we only found out about a decade later. Okay. But like... It's just Capitol Hill, right? Yeah, it is Capitol Hill, which made it all the more shocking yeah. when we found out. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I don't know how you unscramble that egg. I don't know how you pull the Anderson Coopers and Rachel Maddows and the gay people who are embedded in their neighborhoods and communities that are mostly not gay neighborhoods anymore. I don't know how you undo that. They're going to try. They're undoing abortion rights right now. They're going to try. They're going to go after Obergefell. They're going to go after uh, Lawrence v. Texas, which is the decision that decriminalized not just gay sodomy, but straight sodomy too. Um, How many straight people? You're sodomites just like me. (laughs) Ever had a dick in your mouth? Welcome to the sodomite club. Sodomite is anyone who's had non-PIV sexual intercourse or enjoys it or wants to have it again. We are all sodomites now. (laughs) Um, And Lawrence v. Texas not only decriminalized gay sodomy, it decriminalized straight sodomy. And so I'd like to hold on to it, just for the straight people. (laughs) It's in your own self-interest. We're going to bring up Joe in a moment. Um, Since we were talking about uh, your... What's that? Then I can eat cake while you, you, you Yeah. You want to eat while I'm asking a question or sure. the other way around? You want me to cut the cake for you? I should cut the cake for you, don't you think? No, fuck cutting the cake. Let's okay. just... <laughs> I'm a rule follower, Dan. Um, hmm. But do you ever feel... How do you know when you are the one who's old and out of touch, and, <laughs> you know, prudish or, or just don't get it? Or you're, you are, you're marginalizing somebody when you oughtn't, or how do you know when you're, you're, you're people, old? People yell at me. Um, <laughs> and the trick when you're, you know, you're privileged enough to have a platform like I have is that you can't tune out the people who are mad at you, as tempting as that might be, because sometimes they're right, and sometimes they have a point, you want right? To? Oh, thank you. Mm-hmm. You're a gentleman. Um, and so you have to, like, take it in uh, and think about it. Uh, and I do, and I've tried to. Uh, but you can't be paralyzed by criticism. And sometimes you're right and everybody else is wrong. <laughs> and you have to allow for that possibility. <laughs> Did I read that you got, somebody got mad at you because you thought that someone who's asexual should uh, sort of reveal that at the beginning of a relationship? Because, uh, yeah. How did that go? Will you tell that story? Well, when, this is back, like my beef with the asexual community or my, like, their beef with me is that when it first emerged, a lot of people who were asexual were already in relationships but hadn't been able to conceive of themselves or understand themselves, so they didn't have a name, didn't have a word for it. Yeah. And they thought they were broken or if they worked on it long enough or if they'd like, had a relationship. And some asexual people wound up in relationships where then they came to understand themselves as asexual and wanted to stop having sex. They partnered with a sexual person, yeah. but because they were asexual, they felt that it was coercive for them to have to have sex for the relationship to survive. Right. But they also, and these were like letters I was getting at that moment, they also didn't want to give their partners who were sexual permission to have sex with anybody else. Oh, yeah. So they'd made a monogamous commitment and expected their partner to honor it which meant, I, I don't know, if you've made a monogamous commitment to an asexual person, I think that means you only don't have sex with them. <laughs> you have sex with everybody else. Right. And there was this, like, this moment of like, flux and transition as like, the asexual community got a sense of itself, but a lot of people who were asexual were in relationships with sexual people. And 
99% of everybody is a sexual person. So if you're an asexual person and you withhold that information about yourself, you're allowing someone to make an assumption about you that's not, that you know not to be true. If I went out there and asked women out on dates and didn't tell them I was gay and allowed them to make what would be a reasonable assumption based on the fact that I had asked a woman out, most men are straight, almost all men asking women out are straight or bi, that would not be a kind or good thing for me to do. Mm. And for me to then turn around and say, well, you shouldn't assume everyone is straight. Just, and it's on you. I think that's jerk-ass behavior. And so I don't think asexual people want to be dishonest. I don't think... But I was getting letters from some asexual people who felt they had a right to be dishonest at that time, like 15 years ago. I don't get these letters anymore. Because otherwise no one would date them. Right. And it's like, yeah, yeah. Okay, so you don't want to have sex, you don't want to feel coerced, but you can't then mislead people. And as more asexual people come out, you have 1% of the human population to choose from, or you be honest about being asexual, and you have a relationship where it's committed, it's romantic, it's uh, companionate, and it's not sexually exclusive, where your partner who is sexual, somebody who wants to partner with you who is sexual, can get their sexual needs met elsewhere but come home to you that seems to me to be the reasonable compromise. Not, if you can trick someone who's sexual into marrying you, they're fucked. <laughs> I don't think that's... And I'm no less harsh on closeted gay men who marry straight women. Hmm. And to be a closeted asexual and marry a sexual is an asshole move. Just like being a closeted homosexual who marries a heterosexual person is an asshole move. Last thing before I bring Joe Newton out, which I'm looking forward to doing, because you, you have a cake. This is, 30, this is 30 years, so you get to say, what are you, what are you most pleased about in your career? What do, you, what do you feel the best about? Pat yourself on the back. I get letters from people who thank me for saving their relationships and their marriages. Not all of them non-monogamous people. A lot of them monogamous people. Uh, And I get letters from people who saw some... This is what an advice column does. Like, we read them, we're rubbernecking, we're looking at other people's relationship disasters, but then something sticks in our head or something leaps back into our head when we find ourselves in a similar circumstance. Mm -hmm. And we remember at that moment what Ann Landers said, Mm -hmm. or in my case, what Xavier Hollander said in Penthouse Magazine. Mm -hmm. And I've heard from so many people who... 10, 15 years after reading a particular column were helped in the moment that they were in 15 years later by what I said then and will write me to tell me about it. And I find that really gratifying. Um, I hear from people who've like learned to accept their gay kids or their trans kids or worked through their own shit about, you know, finding out their parents were swingers Mm. and being able to understand that and not feel completely at sea or destabilized by it. And that's all really gratifying. I always thought there was just great heart in, in your work. I've been happy to know you for, for 30-something years. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah, thanks for doing it. My pleasure. You Thank you for having me. You like. Uh, Thank you.
Will you please also welcome the illustrator of this book, Joe Newton, out to the stage? Joe? Oh, shit. I thought Joe was going to go here. Joe, welcome. Nice to see you, brother. Full disclosure, the book was Joe's idea. Joe came to me and said he wanted to do this flip card kind of kids-style book um, of Savage Love, and I uh, eventually agreed. I, I was pretty willing to believe that, and then I was talking to my good friend Tammy there, uh, who said, that was my idea. <laughs> uh, I'm pretty sure that was right. You got $7 for that. That's the usual price for your ideas. Joe, we've been enjoying your illustrations all along. There's Thank a few I, I could ask you about, but I sure. first just want to ask why, you know, as you mentioned in your foreword to the book, this is obviously a, an adult book. Why the, why the and, and it's not just this book. Why, why have you gone with the, with the A to Z, you know, it looks like something that my uh, kid, uh, uh, it was a bath book. What do you call those cloth books, or those cloth yeah. books, you know? Why uh, a kid? Yeah, a board book. You why mean the, the kid ones that are the stiff yes. cardboard pages. That yes. was actually my original concept, is it would have been a board book, but with really? 20, it would have probably been about that thick, I yes. think. Um, yeah, what, what were you going for? You know, I love that style. I just have always gravitated to old cartoons and comics, and it's a natural for me. Um, but the early stuff that I did for the column, I remember drawing much more literally. Like, oh, the couple is having sex and they're filming themselves, so I draw two people and the camera's balanced on the guy's butt or something. And it just didn't seem quite satisfying. I've always thought the column had plenty of visceral detail, didn't really need more of that. People knew it was going to be there. And I wanted to add, you know, kind of like you said, Dan, like a little puzzle, a little... Double Me- entendre something. Meta-commentary often. Yeah. Like, what's often, the meta what I love about your illos is they're often making a point that you want to make about the topic. Yeah, definitely. And contributing like an, a, another perspective. Like, I don't see the illos before the column comes out, so it's always a treat for me to like look mm-hmm. at the column online now or if it's in one of the papers I still get uh, and, and see the illo for the first time. And it, it's always such a treat because it's this... Because you're so witty and your visual do you, style is so Do you witty. ever scratch your head, though, and you're looking at it? Because some, sometimes I, I do them and I'm like, eh, that one didn't work. You know, because it's, it's a weekly, I get a couple of days, turn around to, to work on it. Uh, and so I just have to often crank them out in a couple of hours. And so it's first line, best line. Kind of like, oh, do this and that. Yeah, that'll work. And I just do it because there really isn't time to ponder and spend a week drafting it out. So there's sometimes I think it's too oblique. But I still want to get, it's just a style you like? There's nothing more behind going for uh, something disarming or something innocent? Yeah, or some- I think there's some of that. It's a counterpoint to the visceralness of the commentary. And also I think there's actually quite a bit of humor embedded in what you're doing. And I think cartoons are funny. I th- if, this, if it's the first one's what I think, I thought this was funny. Uh, tell, maybe it's going to take both of you to get at what this was about. I think this one's fairly straightforward, actually. The, the lead piece in this was about, originally, I think, a hysterical pregnancy. And it's a, a, a woman with a big belly, and, the, and she's pointing at it and kind of like, how'd that happen? Well, I think we know. Uh, but this is more, I think, about one hand doesn't know what the other one's doing. So your head is thinking one, your head's thinking one thing, and the uh, bottom part of your body 
has its own ideas, <laughs> which you may not entirely be aware of. So that's, that's it. I don't think it's anything more complicated for but me. There's commentary that goes with that. The, the, how, you get a lot of letters that basically say, it just this thing that, happened. How that happened is just about me calling people out for using the passive voice. Yes. And saying, like, I found myself in bed with. Yes. As opposed to, I took off my pants and got in bed with. Yes. Of my own volition. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I love that line. And I think you, in the book, say about the person who this happens more than once, too. Like, the first time, I was in the heat of the moment, and kind of it did happen, not too consciously. But the second and third and fourth time it happened... To be super gross, that one of those examples in the book is a woman woke up with the dog <laughs> licking her labia and allowed it to continue to climax. And then the dog kept doing that. And it's like, okay, the first time, maybe, you woke up to that. The 30th time? And she's yeah. spreading the peanut butter on. Yeah, you're letting the dog in the room for a reason. Uh, tell Del- me about Del- your Del- illustration for Q is for Queer. I think the, this is the second illustration, and there were some columns uh, where the word count didn't quite fill out the space, because they're all six pages, so... You know, it's hard to write it exactly six pages long. So sometimes I'd want to add an extra one. The lead one was a poodle, like a pink poodle, looking at a can of cat food and kind of going, <laughs> yeah, that's for me. Uh, and this was just an extra one. And I think this might have even been about originally about bisexuality or pansexuality or something where it's just, yeah, I'm open to whatever. Yeah, just wearing the sign, wearing it on their sleeve. But all the details, the, the hair, the hair or lack of it, the size, the look on this person's face, the body language with the right. feet and the legs. I just kind of wondered, does that just happen or did you put a lot of thought into tropes or... I do try to put a lot of emotion and expression into body language because, mm-hmm. you know, you only have this much space. And these things, as you guys probably know as readers, are about this big when they run. So the fact that they're a full page in the book is actually not how they were intended to be seen necessarily. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, eyebrows say a lot, can really express a lot of emotion, a lot of tension. I think often people are asking these questions in the column about, should I or shouldn't I? I'm not so sure what I'm doing. And so there's always a little, maybe a little trepidation. Yeah, um, that's what comes across in that facial expression. And so the sort of slightly disheveled, uh, you know, half-tucked T-shirt, or I think it's called a French tuck, so it's very stylish now. But uh, the slightly pigeon-toed effect is just to express shyness and like, oh, you know, I, you know I'm cool, I'm open to whatever, so. Yes. It's the moment after coming out. Ah, where the person, oh, yeah. that's what I see when I look at that. It's the moment after coming out where you're waiting for the reaction. Yeah. And there's hope in his face, but some trepidation. And yeah, he's open now and out now. And how's that going to be received mm. is always the question yeah. right after you come out. Yeah, I think that works perfectly. Uh, quite a few of these illustrations were created for letters years ago. I've been doing the column 20 years, yeah. which means... Two, what's the math? 2,000 illustrations? 52 a year? That seems crazy. A it's lot. Not, it's not 200, so it has to be 2,000-ish. By the way, you're mostly a graphic designer. Primarily, yeah, graphic yeah. design, um, because illustration really is not, not a lucrative career. He was the art director of The Stranger for yeah. many right. years. Yep. 
Yeah, about six years at The Stranger, um, and a couple of my Stranger workmates, uh, Corey Hale and Dan Paula, sitting right over there. Uh, Corey also helped kind of kick my butt into getting the book to happen. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, New is for unpartnered. I, and just, just a, one moment about that chapter. I appreciated how you were um, you're direct with readers about you're not you're not saying uh, oh don't worry you'll you know you'll find someone and and we could probably talk a lot I've about that. I've gotten in such trouble for that. What's that? Forever. Like what you're supposed to say when you write an advice column is there's someone out there for everyone. Yes. And my answer has always been some people never find anybody. You might as well put a life together for yourself that's mm-hmm. rewarding that makes you happy whether you're partnered or not. Because odds are you might not be, and even if you are, you might not be soon. Yeah. And you might not be always. And so if you're, all your happiness is tied into whether or not you have a partner or a romantic partner, you're risking all your happiness on something that you can't control ultimately. You get left, people get run over by buses, <laughs> people have heart attacks. Like very few of us die together with our partners. Yeah. Again, I thought there was great heart in that. And how did you illustrate that? Uh, this one was created for the book. I think here I'm just simply thinking, you know, perhaps Prince Charming here is looking for the one, is thinking Cinderella is there, and is not so sure about the options he's being offered. <laughs> but also, you don't know, maybe once that shoe goes on there, it's, the princess is transformed. I think none of those feet probably fit in there, but those are the choices is offered, so yeah, maybe there isn't a good choice, not an appropriate choice. Yeah, there's two different ways for me to read that illo. Like, he's not going to find anyone, or he needs to get rid of the shoe. <laughs> he needs to change his expectation. I yeah. didn't think about that, but yeah. It's not working. <laughs> and go with the chicken foot. Uh, this one, I think, is on the cover. On the ba- it's on the back. Tell me about this one. I think that one kind of speaks for itself. Just, I- just <laughs> ironing out the kinks, you know. Uh, probably after, after a long, hard day of, you know, whipping people into submission, it's yes. just time to tidy up a little bit. <laughs> and I, the, both of these, I think, are kind of more obvious on the nose ones. I've always been a little unsure about the comedy tragedy. One, like, one of the reasons I use the animals in most of these is because I'm not sure anybody wants my interpretation or Dan's or anybody else's projected onto them. So if it's a specific race or gender or anything else, then they're like, but that makes me mad, or I'm not like that, or whatever else. And then the animal's just kind of cute and universal. So it's probably me cheating and getting out of a much more difficult situation. I've always thought that that was very in the spirit of the column. Mm. When you read a question in the column, you conjure in your mind's eye whoever you care to picture doing whatever's being described. Um, and the illos allow you to, to do that because they don't interrupt yeah, no. by putting into your head some like, like white guy or some like yeah. person with a conventionally attractive body or an unconventionally attractive body. It just like allow like the, yeah. it always being animals. I've always thought was so smart and cute and cuddly animals, sort of pre-sexual images of animals, yeah. the kinds of an- images of animals that we like are exposed to as children. Yeah. Um, just like freeze the mind to like still do that conjuring even when yeah, there's Yeah, they no don't even the generally have genitalia. They're kind of non-gendered or, you know, they're like Mickey Mouse. They don't really have parts. Mm-hmm. Or they might. I mean, who knows what's inside there. And, and like the cues for queer illustration, 
you know, again, there's a vulnerability to how hard this person is trying. Like a lot of the characters are just, they're, they're, yeah. they're not... Uh, they're not glaring at you with, you know, why aren't you as, as wild as I am? It's like, I'm trying here, man. Yeah. <laughs> this is scary for everybody. Because uh, yeah. sex is fundamentally scary, inherently scary. It'll always be scary because sex is huge and powerful. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of insecurity in the expressions, I think. A lot of people are, are like, I, is this going to work out? Or should yes. I do this? And, but yes. you should definitely do that as a T-shirt to sell at kink events. Yeah. I wasn't sure if people who are into... B and D or S and M, whatever, uh, would think that that was funny because are you making fun of us? And I'm not. I just thought that was funny. You know? Do you have to try every sex you draw about so that you can really inhabit the spirit of the? <laughs> I, I, I'm gonna take the fifth. <laughs> I think this is, might be the last one, but, yeah, but it was so. the, it was early in the book. I think it's in your foreword. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that, that was kind of a breakthrough moment because I'd been drawing more literally and had been thinking for a while that what you're really writing about is more conceptual relationship, you know, how you navigate interacting with people in order to get sex, but not specifically about, you know, oh, I'm really, I want the dirty Sanchez or whatever. <laughs> that wasn't real, right? Like, that was... No, that's, bold, that's made up. Although someone's probably done it done sometime it now, just to do so. it. But, yeah, that, but and probably the d- just the ones, punching. and they're like, oh, my God. Anyway. I remember when the Dirty Sanchez and the Rusty Trombone came around, and I never knew what was real. And this is before Google, and I never knew what was real. Yeah, I just found something. Real. Go on. It may not be. But it's, fu- like, it's not funny, but this is, you wanted to do A's for accountability. That was your suggestion for like, what a, the A chapter could be. Yes, right. And, and then my impulse was A's for anal. Yeah. <laughs> There's yeah. the creative tension right yeah, there. Right. Well, and that illustration, actually, the AS for Anal one, originally was for a Q&A because you do lots of the live event Q&As, which is one of these repeating themes. I'm like, oh, my God, how am I solving that again? And it, the target was a Q, and then the arrow is an A. And I was like, well, if I take the tail off the Q, then it's sort of like a butthole. <laughs> and, you know, easy repurposing. But originally when this ran in the column, it was a, as a, for accountability. That seemed to be the theme to me. And I liked that idea. I was like, yeah, that's what this is about. It's not really about this act. And what seemed better than accountability than picking up your own shit. But the, I've always felt like writing about sex, you should start with the act and then zoom out and get to the, the broader themes or the lessons. Mm-hmm. But if you start with the act... People are like, oh, anal, I want to read about anal. Oh, yeah. accountability, I don't want to be lectured about accountability. Mm. Like, you tiptoe up to accountability yeah. by starting with the dirty Sanchez. Yes. <laughs> yes, I mean, accountability is not something you just say to a partner, I'm ready for accountability. You've really got to tiptoe up to that yeah. very, very carefully. Maybe have a drink before you get into accountability. <laughs> it's just good advice. So it's a good partnership because we're you know, coming at it from both ends. Yes. Again, something I've told public radio listeners so many times. Um, we're, we're, at the, we're, we're supposed to be 90 minutes, and we're 90 minutes. What else have, haven't I asked Perfect. you about? What do you want to say? Um, I was thinking while you were talking that what I like about the column, how I, it clicks with me, is the pragmatism of it. Like the what? The pragmatism. No pragmatism. That let's be honest about what we're talking about here. So we're making decisions, like somehow I was thinking capitalism, you know, like getting a little off topic, but that people have all these sort of dreams about what they think the capitalist system actually works like. And it's like, 
you can dream that all you want, but actually when you do this, it has this cost, and we're being very dishonest about the costs, and therefore we're, we have global warming, for example. So it's kind of the same thing. Like you're trying to have a discussion about sex in a way that allows people to think honestly about it so they get honest answers so they're not surprised, disappointed, or angry, or whatever. And I, that, to me, clicks with me. I'm like, yes, that's the way I want people to think more. Sex is like capitalism. Got it? Yeah. <laughs> I'll follow no, we just have to be pragmatic about what capitalism actually is and what, what sex actually yeah. is. Yeah, and then you can decide if you want to participate in you capitalism. Know, it's like, I'm fine with global warming because I have a really nice house. <laughs> <laughs> then, okay, you've made that decision, but at least it was conscious. Is that, is that, is that the final word, Dan? Is there a... Yeah, no, I, just, I, I suddenly feel super guilty about the flight I'm going to be on in a week. <laughs> Way to go. Yeah, well, you'll get a carbon offset, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, I'll plant fine. a tree. Yeah. Uh, I, I always thought, you know, I joked at the beginning about, like, really? I, and that was my reaction when I got your email. Me, of all people, you know, uh, how did he know? How did he know how hot I am? But, uh, <laughs> but I, I've always All been, those years of you hosting Week in Review in a Speedo. How would I not I know. notice? Uh, but I've, just, I've always been a fan, so I was tickled, you know, and... and, and I feel like Seattle is lucky uh, to have had you writing here for so long. And, oh, thanks. Yeah. Now you get to talk. <laughs> I'll just say, like, people ask me when I'm going to stop, and I'm not going to stop. <laughs> uh, an advice column is such a sweet gig. Like, it'll be pride from my cold, dead hands, just like Ann Landers' advice column was pride from her cold, dead hands. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's really an honor and a privilege. Like, I'm not always right, and I know that. And I hope that, as they say on the internet, listen, do better. I've tried to listen and do better over the years, and I will continue to listen and try to do better. But it is such an honor um, that all of these people trust me with their real names, their email addresses, sometimes their phone numbers, and their secrets and their fears. Uh, and have, nobody writes me who's not reading me. And it is always so affirming to get a letter from someone who's been reading me for a long time and then thinks I might be able to not, like, tell them what to do. It's not binding arbitration, like I said. Mm. But I might, like, give them some perspective or the nudge that they need and that, like, people just continue to open up to me. is just wonderful. And I'm such a weird introvert (laughs) that to have this connection to people through the mail... Uh, makes me feel alive and connected to, to, to people and that I've played a, lot, a role in so many people's lives uh, and been welcomed into so many, the, the, pri- the most private spheres of so many people's lives mm-hmm. to try to tinker and help and repair. And it's just been an unexpected, not thrill, that's too lecherous sounding, just this unexpected honor that sometimes, as jokey as the column can be, as sarcastic and awful as I can sometimes be, I just really treasure getting to play that role uh, in people's lives, to be that magpie that kind of like whistles in their ear for a second and hopefully helps a little bit. Um, And I'll keep doing it. I wish people would stop sending me digital photos of the sores on their anuses and their labia. Mm -hmm. I get it. Sure, enough. We'll end with, the, this is like a savage love anecdote that I like to tell. Back in the day, when it was letters, 
people would write me and say, I'm too embarrassed to go to the doctor, and then describe wow. at great length the sore on the anus, the labia, the penis, and ask me what it was. And I would have to put these letters in my column every once in a while and say, I don't know, and I'm not a doctor, and you still have to go to the doctor. And if I did know and I was a doctor, I can't print the column in penicillin this week for you to like put in your pants to cure you. So you just delayed the inevitable trip to the doctor. Go to the doctor. I, after the shift to email, I no longer get the long descriptions yeah. of the sore. People will say, I'm too embarrassed to go to the doctor, but they're not too embarrassed to stand on a sink in a dorm bathroom and bend over in front of the mirror and take a digital photograph and email it to me through an unsecured server under their own name. <laughs> and my lawyer tells me that because the copyright shifts to me the moment someone sends me a question because they know it's for publication, I own all these photos. Ah. And it's our next flip book. Yeah, there it is. Because I've saved them. Dan Savage, does this look infected to you? <laughs> There's your book. I'm too embarrassed to go to the doctor. What is this? Joe Newton, Dan Savage, thank you for being here. Thank you so much. You guys. It's a pleasure. I'm happy. Congratulations. Cheers. Thank you, Bill. Dan Savage spoke with Bill Radke on September 24th at Town Hall Seattle. Index Media and The Stranger presented the event. To find the full event and other great Seattle area talks, go to our website, kuow.org speakers. While you're there, subscribe to our podcast and share your comments. Thank you for listening. Tune in again soon.